2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Please bow your head with me in prayer. Oh God, your word says the blessed man is the one who meditates on your law both day and night. We who have been entrusted with the responsibility of the proclamation of this word We ourselves need reminding of the the essential nature, even as we heard again last night, of taking in this word, eating of it, being filled with it, so that that which we speak is indeed that which you have spoken. So I would pray, O God, that you would re-energize us this morning Recharge our souls as you refill our minds with the preciousness of your word. And may this hour of meditation be pleasing in your sight, O God. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are able to talk on the phone, listen to the radio, read a magazine, drink a cup of coffee, plan a summer's vacation create a grocery list of items to purchase, deal with the suffering of a back pain, all at the same time, while you're driving 75 miles an hour down the interstate. We live in a multitasking world. There are so many things vying for our attention, things that are important, things that are pressing, things, in fact, that are urgent that vie for our minds and our hearts. The Apostle Paul, as he writes this last letter to the young man, his son in the faith, his understudy, he entrusts to Timothy, as he hands him the baton, he entrusts to him the responsibility of faithful ministry. 
ministry of evangelism, which we have already heard about this last couple of days. The fulfilling of ministry in a way that is faithful. And what the Apostle Paul does in this letter as he writes his final words to young Timothy, he urges Timothy to a faithfulness incumbent upon a man of God. He says to Timothy, you live in a multitasking world. There is going to be, Timothy, in your life and ministry, many important things vying for your attention. But let me draw you down to that which is essential. That which supersedes all other things. And that is the primacy of the Word of God and that Word preached. Now I know, I'm at Twin Lakes Fellowship. Not a word I have said has surprised you. But I would suggest to you, brothers, that because of the things that vie for our attention, important things, that we can often, even those of us who are committed to a means of grace ministry, we can allow those things to incrementally encroach upon our hearts, our times, our values, and the priority of soaking in God's Word so that that which we speak is actually that which will bring about what God intends for His people. So in this next few minutes together, I want us to look at this very familiar text I want to consider the charge to a word-shaped ministry. I want to consider the character of a word-shaped ministry. And then finally, the challenge to a word-shaped ministry. In chapter 4, when we get to verse 2, we have this primary imperative that is grounded in the indicative of verse 1. But this primary, primary imperative, the keruxon ton logon, the preach the word, is followed by nine other imperatives in verses 3 through 5. These imperatives are, are built upon, are grounded in that primary imperative that we see in verse 2. None of the imperatives that follow carry the weight of that primary one of the preaching of the word of God. This particular injunction is what John Piper has described as the precarious injunction to preach the word. It's precarious because of the temptation of important things, of even urgent things in our lives, our families, our ministries that tempt us to allocate that precious time of soaking and studying God's word and, and spending that time in ways that we ought not. It is precarious because there is this constant barrage of information telling us that in order for our ministries to be successful, we ought to try this, that, or the other method. There are times when building projects literally rip the soul out of the pulpit as men are committed to getting the building and the edifice that they so view as their legacy in a local church context that literally draws our hearts away from the primary injunction to preach the Word. 
the competing priorities lead us to replace the ultimate with the urgent. To substitute the good and the valuable for that which is excellent and transcendent. And we unwittingly supplant our own set of values for the values that God has given us. Look at the reason why the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. You are familiar with this text. Look back in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Brothers, let me remind you that your wisdom is not adequate to bring someone to salvation. It is the wisdom of God and the deposit of His Word, that which He has given His prophets and His apostles, those that were entrusted with the responsibility of writing down that which God had spoken. These words are the words that we must preach. There is an inherent quality to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul in verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. I tell my students when we work through this text that the word inspiration in its common use can be misleading. What is actually in place here is not the inspiration of Scripture, but the expiration of Scripture. And you say, wait a second, are you saying that Scripture is expired? Yes, I am. But what I mean by that, it is actually the product that the Apostle Paul has in view here. Warfield's work on the inspiration of Scripture has never been overturned. This passive adjective, adjective verbal expression here, theopneustos as you know it, is an expression that tells us about the quality of that which is given. It is actually the product that is in view. What makes the preaching of the Word so essential is because of what the Word is. It is God's Word. The Apostle Paul says, Timothy, preach that Word. Preach that Word. The Word... Gravitas has actually been used already this week. It's not a word that I hear very often, though I do remember when it became very common public parlance. You may remember in the late 80s, in political elections, which, by the way, if you hadn't noticed, we're having those again, just, um, that there was the word gravitas became a household word in comparing one political candidate with another. One possessed gravitas. And the others, well, not so much, it was argued. One of the fears that I have in terms of the way in which the slippery nature of our hearts operates, the, the way in which our, the temptation of our very much personality cult-driven mindset in the evangelical church, the way in which all of those factors converge that lead us to believe that the gravitas in preaching resides in the preacher. When, in fact, the gravitas in preaching resides in the God who has spoken and in these last days has spoken in His Son, 
Jesus Christ. Let us not make the mistake of confusing or conflating eloquence for transcendence. That we believe that rhetoric or oratorical skill is the key to successful preaching and pastoral ministry. Where we replace the power of God's word with belief in the power of our personalities. Brothers, our eloquence does not give birth to the gravitas of grace. It resides in the God who has spoken. Timothy, preach the Word. The word preach is a word that in as many of you know, is a word that actually means to herald. I believe David Strain mentioned that yesterday. Let me remind you of the job of a herald. The job of the herald is to take the word which the king has given and to deliver that to the people. The herald's job was not to take the word of the king and spin it, It was not the job of the herald to add his own opinion about the word of the king. It was the responsibility of the herald to take that which was received and to deliver it. Carl mentioned a few minutes ago about our time in Bulgaria with the shepherds and others and one of the Those of you who've done cross-cultural ministry and have learned a foreign language know the blood, sweat, and tears of learning a second language. And I have a host of faux pas, uh, some of which Craig Shepard will be more than happy to tell you about if you want to ask him. But one memorable experience was a Sunday morning in which I was preaching in English. And it was a stage in my language development where I actually understood everything that the translator said. And so as I'm preaching, I would say a few words and then Moni would translate those words. And as he translated, we got to one point in my sermon where Moni just kind of kept on going. So I noted that what Moni was saying was very, very different than what I had said. So I said to Moni in the middle of the sermon in Bulgarian, I said, Moni, today we will preach my sermon. You can preach your sermon another Sunday. (laughs) But it reminded me of the the task of a herald. The, The task of a translator is to take that which is given and to deliver it faithfully to the hearer. Brothers, that is our privilege. In fact, on one level, one very critical level, the task of preaching is marvelously non-creative. Because we are in the posture of a recipient and have the obligation of a herald to proclaim the mysteries and the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to deliver the word 
given. As we think then about this charge, this charge to preach, look at the context in which the Apostle Paul gives Timothy these words in the very final chapter from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 1 again. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Whoa. Do you realize that what the Apostle Paul does is he situates the exhortation, nay, the command, the imperative to preach. He situates in view of the triune God, God the Father and God the Son, and yes, even God the Spirit. Why? Because the Word is the Theopneustos Word. It is the Spirit-breathed Word. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The task of preaching is under the authority of the triune God. Do not forget that when we preach, we preach before the audience of the one in three and the three in one. The call to preach is a Trinitarian call. Secondly, The Apostle Paul says that it is in view of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. There is an urgency to the task in view of the epical significance of the resurrection of Christ Jesus and his appearing. Paul frames the task and mandate of preaching in view of who Christ Jesus is and what he has done. Note the kingly and kingdom language here is not merely inferential in the word keruxon, but it is actually explicit here. Timothy, your task of preaching is that you report to the king. Brothers, when we preach the word of God, we are doing so under the mandate of the one who alone is king of kings and lord of lords, the resurrected Christ Jesus, the one who now is the resurrected son of God in power, the one who, as the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 will say, is the one who is himself life-giving spirit. The life-giving spirit speaks through you when you deliver the word of God faithfully Sunday morning and Sunday night. And you're doing so as an ambassador of King Jesus. The urgency with which Paul places this is fortified even further when we recognize that this is Paul's final letter to Timothy. These these words, as it were, are his last words. Timothy, as I depart, which is obviously in the text that follows, Paul is very mindful that he is on his last phase of his life and ministry. (laughs) Timothy, the calling to preach is a Trinitarian calling. It is a Christ-centered, epical, redemptive, historical, eschatological calling. I love being able to say that stuff here. But it's all true. Brothers, do not forget 
That you are an ambassador of the King of Kings and that when you open your mouth and open the Word of God, that you are speaking on behalf of the One whom the Father has said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And as those who are tethered to Christ Jesus by that faith union wrought by His outpoured Spirit, We, as the beloved sons of God, proclaim the message of the beloved one par excellence. Let us never forget the Trinitarian and Christ-centered calling of preaching. It is because Christ is King that we have the authority to preach. It is because Christ is King that we have the Word to preach. And the very burning in our bosom to proclaim the things of God is grounded in the historical reality of what God has done in Christ Jesus. Do not ever lose the wonder of the privilege of being His spokesman. Strikingly as well, what could possibly be more relevant than the word of God concerning the Son of God? Brothers, do not think, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a bit, do not think that the pressures for relevance are relevant. Do not give in to the pressures to believe that the voice of the people is what you must answer. As an ambassador of the King of Kings, you answer to Him. The content of this preaching then is the preaching of the Word. It is Trinitarian. It is Christ centered. It is Spirit given. And the mandate is grounded in who God is and what He has done in Christ Jesus. There's a third dimension to this kingdom principle that I don't want us to miss before we go to our next point. Paul will say, Of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, there is an eschatological urgency to preaching. Why? Because Christ Jesus is coming back. Part of the reason why you must be faithful to proclaim the things of God to the people of God, to be a faithful evangelist, as Paul will say in verse 5, the reason that you are to do that is because the one who has come is coming again. And the people of God and those who do not yet know Him must hear His Word. Are you each Sunday morning and Sunday night and as you speak and preach and teach during the week, are you mindful of the urgency of that task in view of the return of Christ Jesus? Do not allow the urgency and the tyranny of a crisis in your ministry, a conflict with your elders. Do not allow those matters to eclipse the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and His word preached. Brothers, do not let it happen. 
the charge for a word-shaped ministry. Secondly, the character of a word-shaped ministry. Verse 2 again, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Some of you are what we might describe as seasonal exercise enthusiasts. You will be willing to exercise, to run, to take that jog if it's not too hot and if it's not too cold. If it's not too dry or it's not too humid. If you feel like getting out of the bed in the morning or if you don't. The Apostle Paul says, Timothy, preach the word in season and out. I love the, I think, intentional ambiguity here. It is not a question of whether just Timothy thinks it's in season or out but also whether or not the hearers think it is in season or out. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that the preaching of the Word of God is pan-seasonal. It is for all times relevant. And whether you think it is relevant or whether you do not, Timothy, preach like a lion. Look at the language here. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. There is a, an exhortive function of preaching that we must never lose. The task of preaching is not merely the conveying of facts. It is to lay out the glorious indicative and then to call the people of God to the implications of that indicative for a faith and obedient response. Preach like a lion. It is always in season to preach with this exhortation, with this reproving and rebuking. Now, I remind you, we've already seen this language of reproval and rebuke. Where? Just in the prior chapter. What really does the reproving and the rebuking As you are preaching, don't miss this. Because the Apostle Paul is calling Timothy to preach. And it's not as though that the preaching is, the the indicative is somehow the biblical part. And the imperative is now how we're going to figure out how to make the implications relevant to our congregation. The reproving and the rebuking is built into the text itself. Take that word and deliver it faithfully in terms of the indicative and the imperative. Let the word of God do its work. And again, as I said earlier, this is a call to a a gloriously uncreative task. At the same time, let me remind you, don't bore your people with your preaching. What bores them is you, not God's Word. (laughs) Let us not then somehow cause our people to think that God's Word is boring because the way in which we deliver it would convince them so. The relevance of the rebuke 
of the reproval and the exhortation is grounded in the text itself. It's grounded in who the Christ is whom we preach. He is our justification and, guess what? Our sanctification. The indicative and the imperative lie in the one who is our Savior and Lord. But not only are we to preach like a lion, the Apostle Paul will say, Timothy, preach with complete patience and teaching. I'm a father of six. Yes, that's the reason for the gray hair. I'm a father of six. One of the hardest lessons that I have had to learn, which is pretty much an indictment on me, is that my kids don't get the lessons the first time around. I obviously do, just like you do, right? You know, in some ways, I think the Apostle Paul is saying, Timothy, preach the word with endurance and patience in the same way that God has been patient with you and with me. Timothy, don't expect your people to get all of this the first time. Teach. Explain. Recapitulate. Do the work of of gentle and patient instruction. The reproval and the rebuking goes for the jugular, but it does so in the context of the heart of a shepherd. You do not take your shepherd's hat off when you get in the pulpit. It is there in which you are shepherding your people. You are taking them to the green pastures where God has taken you. And it is your great privilege to shepherd your people even as you preach like a lion. Look at verse 3. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The Apostle Paul is is using language here. When he speaks of, of people abandoning sound teaching, that's literally healthy instruction. It's, it's a, it's a health-giving in instruction. You know, we, we live in, in an age that is filled with sound bites, filled with Facebook posts and Instagrams and Twitter accounts. And what for many used to be, it, was, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus, now has become tis so tweet to truncate Jesus. That we reduce Jesus to sound bites. But Paul is saying to, to proclaim Christ, to proclaim His Word faithfully, means knowing the Word of God deeply. A shallow theology is inadequate to deal with the complexities of life. We are urged, many of our pulpits have written on them, Sir, we would see Jesus, yes, but which Jesus will they see? 
The only true Jesus is the one that is revealed in the pages of Scripture. He is a profound Jesus. He is a Jesus of theological riches. The Apostle Paul puts the onus on us in this regard. Sometimes your people come to church on Sunday morning longing for a high fructose corn syrup rich Twinkie. When what they need is a spinach salad without dressing. It is, see, our responsibility is not just to answer the questions that our people think they need to have answers to. Part of our job in proclaiming sound doctrine is not only giving the answers, but telling our people what God has said are the right questions. Let me put it slightly differently. If your ministry is at times from the pulpit not perceived as irrelevant, it is likely that you are not preaching the whole counsel of God. It should be upon us, brothers, as we preach the word, to trust the God of the word, to know what the people of God need. And part of your responsibility and my responsibility as preachers of God's word is to lay before the people not only the answers, but the right questions. As God has revealed them in his word. Sound doctrine. The character of sound preaching, of a word-centered ministry, are the riches, the treasure trove that is ours in the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, the whole counsel of God. We have seen then the charge of a word-centered ministry, the, the, the character of a word-centered ministry. Let me close us with point three here with the challenge of word-shaped ministry. You know the Apostle Paul well enough to know that he was no stranger to, 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 to ministry critique. No doubt, just like you are on Sunday morning, people after hearing the Apostle Paul would go home and have roast apostle for lunch. That there are, there are times when your ministry, your choice of dress Sunday morning, becomes household conversation for your people. But much of greater significance than this You all, as ministers of the gospel, know the pain and suffering that ministry entails and involves. You have in your mind lines of shelves of of stories of people whom you have invested hours, weeks, months, perhaps years of your life that at some point turn their back not only on the gospel but on you. Ministry can be disillusioning. It can be disappointing. Your church can be a revolving door of wrecked lives, of straying and wandering sheep. There is a gradual weariness that can set in as we see people that 
will no longer endure sound teaching, but want to have itching ears scratched. And Paul says that they accumulate, literally they stockpile the Benny Hens because that's what they want. What that weariness can do to our own souls is lead us to what might be described as a ministerial intoxication of disappointment. That we get into this state of stupor in which the departing of sheep the failure to hear and apply God's Word can have a droning effect on our own hearts. So as the people stockpile teachers for their itching ears, you have your own heart stockpiled with the stories of people who have rejected Christ and you. And the weight of that can be at times overwhelming. The Apostle Paul says, Timothy, look, At verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded. Do not allow the disillusionment of ministry to lead you into a drunken, discouraged state of affairs. But fix your eyes on the one who is the king, the one for whom you preach, the one whom you serve, Timothy Be sober-minded, endure suffering, and strikingly, do the work of an evangelist. Paul is not dumb to the idea that one of the most encouraging dimensions of ministry is being able to proclaim Christ to the people who do not know him. To do so from the pulpit, to do so with your neighbors, to do so on the street corners, do the work of an evangelist. If you're discouraged in your ministry, Return to the passionate commitment to proclaiming Christ Jesus. And be enamored with Him. Some of us, maybe even today, even as we speak of people who have wandered from our flock, we have in our hearts a discontent in the place in which God has called us. And just because you might feel this morning that this is not where God wants you because you are so discouraged, it may be exactly where God wants you. Because it is in that pathway of discouragement, that desert walk, that the Lord Jesus says, let me show myself sufficient to you there. Because it is in in and through that pathway of discouragement and desert that I will take you to the oasis of my blessing and you will be a more fruitful minister of the gospel. I'm not telling you you shouldn't leave. I am telling you do not allow discouragement to be the catalyst for your departure. The NCAA tournament has reached the final four. I am a University of North Carolina graduate. I need say no more. I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. The 
City High School, where I played basketball, was the place where Pete Maravich had played his final season. My coach coached Pete Maravich. That was a real problem. Because for me and for my teammates, we were constantly compared to Pete Maravich. In my case, it was always a contrast. (laughs) My coach's name was Ed McLean. He was known by all as Dread Ed. Don't think I ever called that to his face. But one of the demands that Dread Ed put on us as players was the ability to take four charges from one end of the court to the other when a man is dribbling full speed. He demanded us being able to do that. Now, those of you who don't know basketball may not know what a charge is. Let me just quickly explain. This is not a basketball lesson, but the illustration needs this explanation. So in in basketball, if you're a defender, you must hold your ground with two feet. And if an offensive player with the ball runs into you and knocks you down, it's a foul on the offensive player. You get the ball. So taking a charge on defense is a very important thing in basketball. It is also exceedingly painful. Because Dread Ed would tell us, I don't care if this man weighs 275 pounds and is going 60 miles an hour down the lane, you are to step in and to take your position and let him drive his knee through your chest and you are to like it. Now everything in you in that situation says, I want to get out of the way. I don't want a knee in my sternum, thank you very much. Brothers, how often is it, even with the charge that we have been given, that we seek to dodge it? The Apostle Paul reminds Timothy of the primacy of the preaching of the word, not because he didn't have anything better to say, but precisely because he knows the efficacy of the word preached and he knows the temptation of his ambassadors to step out of the way of the charge. Brothers, I urge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Get in the way of God's call. In fact, do everything that you can to make sure that you position yourself squarely so that the Word of God punctures you right in the heart. So that the things that you say when you proclaim God's Word from the pulpit that are the very Word of God, as the second Helvetic confession will put it, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. One Puritan put it this way, the more purely God's Word is preached, the more deeply it pierces and the more kindly it works. May God give us the courage until Christ returns.
to be his faithful ambassadors and spokesmen. Brothers, preach the word. Let us pray. What a privilege it is, our great God in heaven, to be given this privileged task to be your heralds. May we take that charge resolutely, faithfully. And for any in our midst this morning that are suffering through the dark passageways of disillusionment, even facing the drunken stupor of discouragement in ministry, oh God, fill their sails again with the wind of your promises and blessing. May your word so sweetly Touch our own minds and hearts that we cannot help but preach Jesus and Him crucified. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.